Welcome, everybody. You're heard here live on MonkerRadio.com, where music reminds me. You already know me. I'm Marcy, alongside my guest. First off, she's a former WWF ring announcer, a former color commentator, and one of my favorite guests, my completely damaged, someone who took me under her wing and believed in me when I didn't believe in myself in the beginning, the one and only Mike McGurk. Mike, welcome back to Completely Damaged Radio. So good to see you. Good evening, Completely Damaged Radio. How is everybody? And my love to our host here. Uh, we are doing fantastic. First off, I'm so honored and, and grateful to be talking to you again. So uh, tell the fans out there how you got involved with professional wrestling, because I know your dad was a huge part of the professional wrestling business. Um, and tell about that. And also tell the fans, uh, did he push you to be in the business as well? Oh, Lord, no. Oh, my goodness, no. Uh, I think anybody that's listened to my story or uh, has read a book by some people that's out there <laughs> know the story. My dad was a collegiate, an NCA collegiate champion, wrestled with one eye, really, and then came went on to uh, his his love was journalism. So he graduated from Oklahoma A and M, which is now Oklahoma State University. Go Pokes, our Cowboys. Um, <laughs> Anyway, he really didn't tend to go into wrestling. That was it. It was just that was the sport that he could compete in with one eye. So his journalism was what he was going out of and, and did graduate and went immediately worked for Tulsa World here at the um, sports desk. So that another play came into it that through the years, you know, everything that you do now, you know, you can't see the imprint that it might have in your future, but just like that, it, it eventually came to fruition of uh, his his uh, sports editing and journalism. So anyway, a promoter named Sam Avey that was doing hockey and doing a little other things here had followed my dad's career and uh, called my dad and got a hold of him and asked him. He said, Miss um, Leroy, what are you making there? And the story is, he's like, well, twenty five dollars a month. Okay, no, wow. this is like 1934, 1935, right? And he said, well, I've followed your career, your college career, and this is what I'm doing, and I'm starting professional wrestling. And I'm going to I'm going to go I'm going to go out as far as Memphis and a lot of territories. It was so new then. And uh, but this is what I'm going to do. And um he said, what will it, you know, what what's the pay? And um Mr. A told me it's $25 a week. I'd left the paper and never went back. So he went on to, yeah, I mean, in those days you don't. And he went on the road and the road wasn't so gentle back in the days. But um, from, um, he worked for Sam Mushnick. He was down in, uh, and from, gosh, he went out to LA um, and left LA just as the World War II was breaking because they were afraid at that time that the Japanese were going to come over and, and bomb California. So everybody was leaving there. And so he went all over. He didn't fly, you know, it was driving. So in, and in Houston, he was a, a bad guy. He was a heel, but always a baby face here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, well-loved. So he was a junior heavyweight champion. That was his weight class. And that was his love when he even started in promotion. So how he got into promotion, he was, he was still defending his belt in Little Rock, Arkansas. This is before I was born. And as wrestlers do, after the match, he, they wanted to go and relax. And there was a place that was outside of Little Rock. And he was being driven. And um, on the way back, a drunk driver 
had them head on and the windshield took my dad's good eye. He wore sunglasses, but um, the impact didn't take, you know, didn't damage the false eye. And it was within about a year that he lost his eyesight. He held the tournament. And I was just talking to uh, Ted DiBiase about this because his dad, Mike DiBiase, Iron Mike, was also a, a collegiate wrestler out of the Nebraska area. And so you had Joe Blanchard and all these guys back and then Vern Gagne. So all these guys always had the amateur background. And that was the love of, and the connection that my dad always had with a lot of the promoter. And then Stu Hart, my goodness, you know, my dad would tell me about, I'm, I'm sorry, Stu would tell me about how tough Leroy was. And that's a, that's a compliment because uh, Stu was no pushover, as we all know, at all. Yeah. And, um, and even dad, they would put um, down in Houston, he would wrestle the heavyweight, which was uh, Lou Fez. And they were very good friends, but also too, it, it took uh, it took a few times around in the ring for each other. Uh, you know, Lou thought he was great. My dad thought he was great. And there was a, a bit of a talk in the middle of the ring. And I know that um, dad told Lou, and they, as I said, they were friends, but it was like, you know, who's gonna tear whose shoulder off? Are we gonna have a match? Or are we gonna have a shoot? So, yeah. um, you know, and, and that was the respect. So anyway, when my dad knew he was losing his eyesight, uh, he held a tournament, which Vern Gagne won the junior heavyweight belt and took it on up there. And so the, they always rem remained that connection from uh, the Minnesota and, of course, Bob Geigel, uh, Pat O'Connor in the uh, Kansas. And, and then later on, Harley was a partner. And then you had Joe Blanchard and then, of course, Fritz in Dallas. So that Midwest connection. But that was that was, again, he went into the promotion and it was an alliance. It was the National Wrestling Alliance. So all the promoters got along because you didn't have everybody walking over each other. The television that you had was your territory. So wherever you bought the television and wherever it beamed out, such as uh, my dad had uh, by the time that I was, uh, he did sell out in Memphis, which went on to George Goulas. And for anybody that's listening, this is history. So <laughs> it's going way back, but he had, Two towns a night running almost from uh, up until the 1980s until the split with Bill Watts. So my dad went into promotion only due to mandatory because he was losing his sight. And and that thank goodness that uh, Mr. Avey allowed my dad to to buy in. And then dad just grew and he just um, started, you know, he, he was one of the innovators that he knew television. This is a man that can't see now. But he knew television was coming in on the scene. And, um, and you know, it, back in those days, television paid you, paid my father to get the content because they were looking for content. And it sure changed in the years later. But that's how he got into promotion. Now, how I got into it was only it, back then. And so many of the fans would come up to my father and ask, oh, is that the next girl, lady wrestler? And my dad, I can't, I will not cuss here, but I can just tell you it was, um, there was a word or two before no. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was, you know, absolutely no. And he had, and it was not anything against the, the women at all. It was that he knew how rough it was and how those girls um, sacrifice their bodies as, as anybody does that gets in that squared circle. Um, just look at them, you know, um, there's, 
I can't say it enough. Um, I don't care what Vince went out and said. It is is it is it fake? Those words were words that you know I I grew up and anybody the second generation or third generation we defended that um, it was showmanship. Was it fake? No, because everything that they're doing in their in that ring is with their body and with somebody else's. So, and I I myself know what an injury is. You know, I had a, a back injury in 1990 due to a mistake of um, a wrestler coming in. Um, did, it was one that didn't do what he usually did and backed up and came. And as I was making a way to go to my uh, my chair by the ringside, his body hit me this way. So I didn't know it at the time. But about two days later, when I went home, then I knew I was sore in my back. And that was when I had a herniated disc. And um, so I have a, uh, I've had two back surgeries, one in 1990 and then um, then in uh, 2009. Same scar. But um, yeah, it, it's it's and that was just that was just being there. You know, I wasn't even in the ring with my body. And, um, you know, just take a look at the guys nowadays and the aches and the pains and, you know, I, I dare for somebody to say that, you know, uh, I think what they look at your, it's entertainment, it's entertainment. And, and it's not, it's not uh, animated, you know, as far as like cartoon characters, their characters are right, but their bodies are actually in there and they're slinging everybody around and things don't always go as planned. Um, you know, you can say how many times, uh, things can happen. Accidents happen all the time. You can be a driver, uh, and you can do your specific role day in and day out and accidents happen. And, um, uh, and then it's, it's scar tissue, uh, mentally and physically. Right. So, yeah. And, and, you know, um, look, I lost a dear, you know, Owen, we've all can go back to Owen Hart. And in my mind, exactly what he was doing was his job and it was a it was uh, an unfortunate terrible accident but i think what he was doing was preparing himself you know getting ready as, as they were going to release him and instead it released him so do those things happen yeah well even when i was a kid um and my dad stopped that because he stopped the guys the boys from wearing the same color of trunks because danny hodge's father went up one night they were in Oklahoma city at the fairgrounds and, um, he, he had a knife and he just started slashing. Well, he also got his son too, but he also got Danny Jack Donovan. So yeah, I mean, Danny's, Danny's daddy wasn't aware of, of anything. You know, you didn't tell anything about that, what was going on. That was a business. So how I got into it was later years on and my dad and my mom had sold the business and, of course, we had made friends for years throughout, and Terry Garvin happened to be up there with Pat Patterson. Gosh, I didn't even know at the time. I think um, I know Pat had told me, but even Gorilla had worked for my father back in the 50s. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So they all knew of my father. And so it was kind of, I think, a lot of times that I got my chance was that Leroy's got a daughter. Hmm. And, um, and it, it, you know, breaking into it, that helped did, did my father make that call absolutely not because i started uh just providing the ring that was what uh terry had called about and said hey you know vince is getting ready to do this vince senior had just passed away 
And um, so kind of the alliance had really broken up and Vince didn't care. Vince was, and nothing against Vince McMahon. It was just, I'm going worldwide as, as far as my TV will go. And so I was essentially running or helping them run against my father's business and every everybody that was in the NWA with that ring, because if you didn't have a ring, you didn't have a show. And there were times that I think they tested me being WWF is like, okay, well, you're getting ready to go into Tennessee. Well, there's a promotion there and there's people's lives, livelihood. They didn't want to see me come in there with the ring, but um, I guess I was, I don't want to say young and dumb, but I just said I was, I knew that I had a job to do. And without a ring, these guys weren't, it wasn't going to happen. And I didn't think about the danger. And I was going to, we were going to have a show. And I thought with every time that I was able to make that happen, it also kept my foot in the door to go further, which it did. So I ended up going up to, to Kansas City and meeting Harley, which was not happy about that. You know, and I, at that time I was uh, renting a, mo a motorhome and carrying the ring, which is one ton. It is a very heavy ring. Wow a free suspension ring. So anyway, that motorhome could carry, but it also enabled my dad to get on the road and go to the dressing room and see the guys that gave him Ooh. life. So, you know, I, I told Harley and he goes, you know, um, we're, I'm here to, to destroy this ring. Cause I don't want, you know, I don't want WWF to have a show here. And I'm like, well, with that in mind, I want you to come out and uh, visit Leroy out here before you do. <laughs> so, I'm putting that ring up. I have ring right. people there. So, and, and as it went on, I went everywhere. I went as far as uh, my North, North Dakota. This was before Vince had the rings all, as he did. So this was, you know, at the very beginning, 1984, I started. And uh, by 1988, which I was kind of telling you, things don't always happen real fast. And I was doing house shows beginning 1986 as an announcer. But up until then, I was supplying the ring, making sure that the jackets were picked up and running the music so that they could trust me. And it gave me a little bit more money. It wasn't just ring. I wanted them to, to know that these guys, that the agents can come in and they've got enough to worry about with ticket sales, everything else. They don't need to worry that the ring's up and looking sharp and nice. And two, Vince supplied all the turnbuckle pads. Um, I had my own bell that I had to protect from George the Animal Steel because I've said, this is not something you're going to tear up. <laughs> and I've got three more shows to go, so don't be eating the, you know, the ring, the ring right. pads. You know, and he, of course, I think he probably thought, who are you telling me this? And it's like, you don't understand. So <laughs> there, I've got to go on. And I was even carrying the merchandise. I put that on top of the ring. So yeah, it was, it was uh, very unprofessional at the time, but we were, we were, you know, Vince was like, let's have a show. So um, that helped a lot. And then um, as time went, and, and getting and gaining no nonsense attitude with each agent that they knew I wasn't up there as somebody that was, I wanted to look professional, but I, you know, I wore uh, for the first, gosh, three years, I was wearing a man's tuxedo, kind of long in certain places, but um, it was wool. And, uh, but I, that was the whole thing is how I started. And so once we got the sewing girls and we, you know, I had uh, some spandex and uh, lighter jackets, which everybody has seen now. But in the old photos, you'll see maybe like a white 
it was a white wool rented tuxedo, but because I liked the tails, I didn't want to do anything different, but I liked the tails and, uh, and kind of jazz it up with the, the vest and stuff. So, yeah. So to make a long story even longer, I was not, I was not asked to get in it. It was a need, uh, a love of, yeah, we've got a ring. Vince is coming in. Cool. Well, I had known Vince Sr. I had met Vince Sr. through the National Wrestling Alliance meetings that I attended with my dad um, right before, you know, back in the 80s when we still um, had our territory. And, uh, and I loved him. And I remember talking to uh, Sr. What a prince of a man. Great guy. He and my dad served on the grievance committee for the National Wrestling Alliance. So anybody that was, you know, unhappy, other promoters unhappy with each other, those two uh, fellows went in and um, worked it out amongst everybody. So, yeah, they if there was a grievance, that was soon worked out. So I remember asking, I said, so, you know, not knowing, I said, do you have a son? He goes, oh, yeah, Vinny. So I always knew about Vinny and that Vinny was in television. Boy, was he in television, you know, <laughs> boy, was he, you know, and I, those words, yeah, I was like, God, what senior had said. So anyway, I think that connection also helped because Vince Jr. had, um, had heard of my dad's name and course of the territory through his father and everything kind of played into it. Um, and, and also what I had done because he said, well, I've heard some fascinating stories that you have, uh, gone to Tennessee and you've gone into the, your, your father's old territory and run against Bill Watts. Did we have some problems? Sure. There was, uh, there was a time or two, um, especially one of my first, uh, where there was a ring set up when I got there, which was set to fail and set to fall. And obviously without a ring, you weren't going to have a show. But in my mind is like, not only have I got paid people right now, my old ring crew is, um, I've got a job to do, and I've made a promise to those people in New York, Terry Garvin, and um, of course then uh, George Scott and John Ringley. George Scott used to be a booker for North Carolina, and all of them like vouched uh, like she, yeah, um, it's a good ring, it's a great ring. The the guys liked it. It was free suspension. There was never any springs in it because of the way that it was set up, <clears throat> an 18, 18 foot square, and so yeah, the ring was great, and I provided it. And, um, it, uh, got me to where one thing led to another, led to another. And it really was based upon where the announcing came in is Memphis, Tennessee, mid South Coliseum, right where Elvis played. And that was another thing. It was like, I loved Elvis. And the next day we were going to Graceland, but I, what happened was they had a, a, a disc jockey there that they were doing some trade out in promotion and promoting. And he got up there and acted like a fool. And um, Jack Lanza came out with his clipboard and he, if there would have been a cane or anything or rope, that man would have grabbed him out of there. But anyway, it was like, get him out of there. And he came to me because here I was still, I was in a tuxedo, even though I've not been in the ring, but I was at ringside, right? Getting a Jack's professional. If you don't act professional and those crowd and that, those people that pay that, then how are you going to get respect? You're not. So in my mind, I grew up in this business and looking at that, you know, what if I had done this or that, you know, I always respected somebody that came out and was dressed. So anyway, he came, he said, come on back here. And, he, and that's, God, everybody was on the card. It was from, you know, Moolah. I knew Moolah since I was a little girl and Andre's on the card and geez. 
And so he said, um, well, I want you to announce. And he goes, you know how to announce, don't you? And I went, no. <laughs> and I didn't. I mean, he goes, well, you've been at ringside, haven't you? And I said, absolutely not. Those were for paying customers. My dad never let me be up there that close. I was back there with the hired help and uh, the arena, you know, um, and uh, hooping and hollering. But no, absolutely not. So that was the first time. And it happened to be my mom's birthday, September 12th, 1986, that I uh, went in the ring and uh, for the first time. And again, so things didn't happen fast, but yet it paid extra money. Right. So again, um, I'm like, hey, Jack Lanza, the next show we do this, you know, forget the local guy. You, you have trust in me, but it was kind of like, well, let's see here because I had other agents that I had to convince too. And once they gave me a shot and, and saw that because they weren't taking any, you know, Howard wasn't on the road. Nobody was, they were back at East. So again, this was the early stages. And so it took, it took another two years and a videotape that I sent, uh, to Vince, um, so he could look because remember we don't have cell phones, so he doesn't know what the show looks like. He doesn't know how it's going, and um, so one night with a sold-out crowd in uh, Wichita, Kansas, with Hulk, I sent. I had a guy just out of Yellow Pages. You know, things happen for a reason, and um, this guy had invented the Skycam way back in the day. And um, he said, sure. And I said, well, this is what I want. I didn't want a long video. I wanted it 15 minutes. And I don't even think it went that far. But um, just of every match, I wanted him to pan out. I wanted him also to hear me and see me get in and out of the ring, but see me introduce and, um, and then get an idea of what kind of reaction is happening also when Hulk came in. So it was, it was that little videotape that um, got me in right after WrestleMania 1988. Because their fiscal years started at the time right after that. Is that a long question? Is that a long answer that, to one question? That, that was that was beautiful. <laughs> a, B, C, and D. <laughs> right. So, Mike, let's talk about the hair and the ring attire, the unique ring attire. Did you come up with that look? Um, I yes, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do the tails. I like that. And again, like I said, I was the thing that I could change at the beginning was um, the, the cummerbums and the vest and the, the ties. Well, as it came, the, the more and more dates happened and those, those wool rental tuxedos was a bit heavy and they got a little costly, uh, especially when the fans are throwing beer and spitting and doing all of that, you know. Um, so Vince in the, in the meantime had hired um, our sewing girls that I think some of them are still there. Terry is still there. And immediately they were looking for work and they were looking, you know, some of the guys already had their gear. And so I was one of the first that uh, I was like, Hey, this is my idea. And, and then they took off with it. Uh, I, I wanted it to be tails, you know, to have the tails and let's get something glittery, but not too much over the top. Cause I still wanted to be covered up. Good Lord. Yeah. So I still used my tux top, you know, regular tux top. We cut the sleeves out because a lot of times it'd be just too hot. But it also enabled me to be able to carry these things, wash them out. And um, and then it would catch the camera really well. So, uh, yeah, that was a neat idea. So it was a combination of my idea and those girls having some fantastic and we'd go over the fabrics, you know, and what I what I wanted to do. And um had I known, but of course, you know, we didn't back then. We were filming three weeks of television in one night. So I wasn't changing 
um, the jackets, like, you know, what we probably would now. Um, so for like, for like those you would see, I could always know it was like for those three weeks, that was the same, same outfit, but that was, you know, that was how that worked. And, um, yeah. And so the high heels, sometimes they would get it so that, you know, um, the high heels were cause I wanted something sparkly and I couldn't change up too much. So I would go to different areas every time I'd go into town or, you know, go to a mall and find some sparkly high heels <laughs> and try to get some, uh, you know, we'd put some rubber platforms on them. Um, and then um, I had to be careful because we couldn't do anything with the heels and we had mats, you know, so when I'm jumping out of the ring, you, Vince did not want to hear a, you know, he didn't want to hear me exploding those things. So my calf muscles were pretty good at the time. Yeah. So yeah, there was all kinds of things that those little bitty things, but yeah, that to answer you that, but um, thank you sewing girls for some terrific uh, material that we made. Yeah. I know. I, and I still so have talk about, a little vast. Really? Oh yeah. That's, that's awesome. So talk about your relationship with Howard Fingal. Uh, how was that? I really didn't, um, I didn't know just how, uh, you know, everything was so new just to even get up there to have that chance. So I really, I had no idea of, of dynamic of relationships or probably what everybody thought is like, oh my gosh, what is Vince doing here now? So I obviously, I wanted, I wanted uh, to hopefully have Howard take me under his wing and, and in so many ways that he did and how um, I learned from his verbiage. And I really, really liked Howard by how he started, by what he, you know, incorporated and what, what I had. And, and I always looked at it this way as, you know, no, there's not one special person that takes, takes a village, right? Takes everybody. And that's what I looked at as Howard as I like, Howard, I'm not here to, you know, take us like a, a wheel. I'm not here to replace that wheel. I'm here as a spoke. And I just want us all, you know, to enhance because there's, there's no, there was never any taking over Howard ever, you know, Howard was Howard. Right. And that was what I was trying to learn for each of us is that we're going to be our own individual that it was not where if you like me you hate Howard or if you like Howard you hate me and that was never never the way that uh, hopefully you know I always teased him I said well you know you can always put on a skirt and let's see where we go from there (laughs) (laughs) I said you might look pretty good in a blonde wig and I don't know how I look in in your hair but um, you know yeah. yeah but I loved I loved Howard and even afterwards Howard would um, call and see how I was doing and why Howard was still alive. In fact, it was our last, I got to make a plug for my CAC, my beloved cauliflower alley club, which Tim uh, was uh, our announcer, uh, was our referee and uh, a friend uh, between both of us and Howard, I had heard was not doing well. And I sent word through Tim and he said, you don't know how much that will mean to Howard. And, uh, I said, well, I, I've never, I've never, never forgotten Howard and loved him dearly just for the fact of he could have, he could have been, he could have made it hard on me. He could have, but he didn't, you know? Um, and I think that was, that was great. Cause we, he, he learned that, 
this girl really, really likes me. And she's, you know, asking me things, you know, I didn't come in there with any kind of attitude at all. So yeah, I was like, Hey, Howard, help me out here. So yeah, it was great. So let's talk about the, um, your relationship with the strong independent women of the company, like Sherry, uh, Elizabeth, et cetera. How, how, how are they with you? Well, Sherry, had worked for my father back in the day when she had worked uh, with a guy named, he wrestled under the, the hippie named Mike Boyette. So my father, so, so there was a respect there that Sherry had for my dad, but yet, you know, Sherry, Sherry could hurt me. And I know, <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean, I, I, there was never a doubt in my mind, but you would never know that. But I came in there with that respect because of her profession, because of, uh, who she was and, and she'd already been, you know, she'd been to Japan and back and, and had years under her belt. And of course we knew some people of uh, the same wrestlers. And, and, uh, so there was a respect there out of both of us. And we just had a friend, uh, she had a dog in the dressing room. The first time I had it, uh, you know, so I was like, Oh my God. So we were both animal lovers and we hit it off. She, um, I just can't even explain to her because Sherry was so different from her ring persona to a loving, loving person. We were talking uh, just this past weekend in Tampa about if Sherry was here, Sherry, everybody would have known because Sherry would go around to every single person and love and hug and all of them. And, and so, so forthright. I mean, her heart was all over her shoulder for her to be and do the interviews that she did. Yeah. It was even more of a talent of what she, the others, the dark side of Sherry, if there could have ever been, because she was such a loving person and uh, taught me early on. I, there was no bringing in, um, you know, because when we were there at the arenas and filming, we were there all day. Sorry about the dogs. Hey, I think my granddaughters are gone. Anyway, um, I, I would bring a piece of cake in, you know, that was always something that she, it would be in the trash because she goes, you're ruining your system. What, what is this for? And I'm like, there went my cake, you know, <laughs> anything. So she taught me about eating healthy and, and hey, and doing all of that. Well, it always, so she looked out for me, but also it was like, but that was my piece of cake. She goes, you're not going to eat that crap. You're not going to put that in your system. So she was always mother, motherling Sherry. Um, and, and so then there was Liz, beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous Liz. And um, one of the first times that uh, I got to meet her and, and, and Randy, we were at the Superdome and I had my daughter on the road with me at the time. And um, they, we were there early, early in the afternoon, and this was not a television. This was a just a regular house, regular house show in the Superdome, right? But um, she was so good to my kids, and and the minute she opened her mouth up, she had that Kentucky drawl. Of, she goes, "Why, hi, honey!" And I was like, "Oh my God! Not only is she beautiful, she is a sweetheart, and just loved my daughter." And Randy was good when I also had my son later on on the road um, and they loved kids. And, and that was, uh, and my, and my daughter looked up to Elizabeth cause she, she was a beauty. She was gorgeous. And she would hang out in the dressing room cause we would back then always, they had their special dressing rooms and Randy always kept Liz away from, from um, any of us. 
and not any, he, he protected her. And also too, the two of them dressed together. They were, they were married, so that was cool. But they, she was, I, even as I can say, I loved both of them. I loved Randy and Randy trusted me with Elizabeth. And at one time um, I was going to, she was going to travel with me when, when they were doing the split and um, Randy was, you know, taking on Sherry as a manager. And, and so Elizabeth, but yet she was going to, they were going to keep her on the road, but he wanted somebody to be traveling with her that he could trust and he couldn't trust Sherry. <clears throat> that would never work. And so that was, yeah. Oh God. And, um, and, and I say that it was because Sherry, Sherry was not, um, she liked to partake in after hours as we all used to, but, um, he, he just wanted Elizabeth protected and he wasn't, uh, real sure that, you know, that Sherry was going to be responsible enough, but that didn't happen. Things went a different direction with Elizabeth and, um, but I still stayed friends with her, loved her dearly, even with Lex when they would come in to Tulsa, WCW then uh, make plans to always see Elizabeth because there was, there was a while that was just the three of us, you know, and you don't ever forget that. And then Luna came aboard. So the women, you know, we were, we were never, we were just fortunate to be there and we knew that we didn't make waves. And I think it was a tougher proving ground for us um, of what we could sustain. And it's not a joke. And I tell everybody, uh, you know, the first person that I changed clothes with was the bird, Frankie. You know, I, I was like, oh, this is oh, great. Yeah. You know, I'm in San Francisco at the Cow Palace and um, I'm thinking I've hit, the, you know, the big time. And I'm, at, you know, my tele, you know, television and I wasn't announcing I was doing color commentary. So I had, you know, I was getting into my tuxedo that I, you know, again, the big wool tuxedo. And they were like, yeah, um, yeah, I think you're over here. And it eventually ended up behind a curtain and me and the bird and a bunch of brooms and mops. And I, I made that bird. I was like, Frankie, don't you dare. Don't you dare say anything that you're looking at right now. <laughs> I, was, I was afraid to undress. Uh, can you imagine? Bird, so. Oh, my gosh. Oh, God. Yeah. So, you know, anything that I had in my mind about that was um, soon dissipated. It was like, hey. <laughs> so, you, but you may do. In other words, it, it, who am I to ask for anything? I was there to be to suit up and do my job and um you know complaints that's uh, you know forget it now you know is a whole different deal is which i've been told is like oh my god mike we wish you were out here at the ringside because i never i never asked for anything i didn't dare and i didn't even you know think about it the show would start maybe seven o'clock at night and we'd go run till midnight because we were running straight through of three weeks worth of taping so um, there was no bathroom breaks. And let me just tell you, when you've got spandex and pantyhose underneath you and, and you don't know how much time you're, you just don't drink anything before you go out. Because again, they're not going to understand it. You know, and in a man's world and you're going to go, Hey, I need to use the restroom. They're going to like, what you're use the restroom. We don't have time for that. So, you know, you just didn't do that. You didn't make any waves. You just right. wanted to enhance and be a part of the show because if you made waves, you'd be cut. You know, I, I, I knew that, you know, who's this? Definitely. So let's talk about the, the ribs. Cause I know Bobby, the brain Heenan got you a whole bunch of times, Rick rude that they all 
had their way with you at, in some point when you didn't call them well, out well, to their <laughs> room. Easy, care, but they didn't have their way yeah. with me. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But you know what I mean. They, they, always, yes. they always put you on the spot. Yep. Talk about that. Thank God for Bobby the Brain Heenan. I never knew the things that he, he said to me, it, although there were probably things that he always said to me to my face um, because he was so quick-witted. And I grew up, as I kind of told everybody, I digress, in this business. And so I grew up around the wrestlers as a little girl, and they always would give me a hard time, you know, and, and oh, I hear your name's Mike. Can you wrestle Mike? And, you know, these were, you know, I was probably five, six, seven years old, but I always knew that the wrestlers would, uh, would tease me unmercifully, but it was a, I, I learned that if they didn't, they didn't like you, but obviously that if they teased you, that they liked you. And so I, I didn't, I probably didn't know better, <laughs> but right. it, Bobby to, for him to even pay attention to me and say the things that he would backstage and tease me. Plus he knew I, I respected what he did and who he was. I respected everybody in their position and, um, wanted to fit in the best that I could. So with that, never, ever did I know what he was saying behind my back because those, you know, I was out, literally, I was out there in the ring or, you know, they were doing voice, voiceovers afterwards back at the studio. And I, I hear some of the stuff and just like you, thank God for him because ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys alike, there had never been a recognition like that because constantly it was like, oh yeah, who would name a daughter named Mike or that I was always asking Bobby out or, you know, um, those kind of things. Or that, you know, that my voice emulated a cat scratching in a litter box, you know, so it's like, right. uh, you know, um, who, who comes up with stuff like that? But yet he threw my name out there. And of course, Gorilla always played it as like, that's not nice to say. Mike's, Mike looks like, Farrah Fawcett, and of course, then you know, yeah, you know what? Because I did, I was actually in a Farrah Fawcett lookalike contest. And what was Bobby Heenan's comeback? More like Drippy Fawcett. So yeah, I'm like, hey. <laughs> I think, and then Gorilla would be like, oh, will you stop it? Oh, will you it? stop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had, and the thing that would have been fun had if I'd ever got to be with the three of them, that had probably been a constant back and forth and I would have never been able to stay up with Bobby. So it's probably the right. best thing that I didn't know. Cause he would have, you know, he, he, uh, but I like the way that you put that, that um, they had their way unbeknownst than me because right. I'm out there, you know, look at that hair and, and everybody, I just want to tell you a lot of times back in the day that, you know, that hair, again, we were doing three weeks of television. So that hair was put together it was all mine. We didn't have extensions. So final net. So some of it didn't like come out a lot. So we just put it up and a lot of it was Sherry. If Sherry did my hair, cause Sherry was, that was what she was going to do was um, she was going to be a beautician once she retired from the business and loved it. You know, she look at the way she did her makeup. God, right. I can't say much for what she did for my hair, but I've never, I've had, straight hair all my life so and the hot rollers so a lot of times we'd be out there and those hot lights and everything and it would just the curl was gone so we'd put it up but also when she did that that meant she could mess it up and so there'd be times that she would look right at me and i i knew it she'd look right at my two eyes and then she'd look at my hair and was like and i would which 
the fans didn't know it. And I would whisper, you know, or talk because they can't pick it up. The mic's off. And I go, oh, God, no, Sherry, now you don't do this. And she's like, it's mine. I can do what I want. And so, yeah. Right. And a lot of times it was sprayed so much that it would kind of just stand. <laughs> and you'd see the boys, Dusty, there at times would just start laughing. They couldn't keep from laughing because I'd be sitting there just like, okay, you happy now? <laughs> and it was just fun times that the audience never knew what was going on. That's awesome. So who is one person that you never had a chance to call down to the ring that you wish you would have? Oh, oh I, if I said that, I would be taking away the people that I know people are going to be, oh, okay, ha. Huh. But I'm thankful that I got to call everybody that I did and that, you know, um, well, I can, I can, if you want to ask, it'd been, it'd been pretty cool for me if I could have called Elvis Presley down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, been- I loved Elvis. So, but he was, you know, he was already passed on, but I, uh, anybody that knows me, I've got a, I usually wear my TCB and I was crazy about him. I named my daughter Priscilla. That tell you something. So yeah. And, 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 and two, it goes way back to where Elvis when my dad did have uh, own a part of Memphis territory that Elvis and his family would come to the wrestling matches and, and ask to play in between like for intermission. And my dad's famous words were like, go away boy. And I was like, Oh my God, dad, you didn't. He goes, well, a couple of times I let him play, but it, you know, that was not the, the place. So his, right. in his mind, he was like, and he even knew, of course, being in the business, he knew the old Carney. He knew, Colonel, because Colonel was around. He had Colonel had picked up Minnie Pearl, and he had done some wrestling matches. But Colonel was an old time Carney pr- promoter, and then got lucky, and he knew his craft. You know, look what he did with Elvis. But uh, yeah, um, so yeah, so he never understood how Elvis grew as like my mom and I did, and I think part of it too was like, you know, dang, you know, who who'd have thought? Who'd have thought right. the kid that used to want to sing and play guitar at the wrestling matches and 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 two his his family stayed loyal wrestling fans his he had an uncle vester that was the gatekeeper at graceland and he was very good friends with sputnik Monroe. for those of you that ever sputs and they remained a lot of his family remained wrestling fans so yeah again that memphis connection goes way back i know jerry i think i think the king i think lawler had met Elvis, I'm not sure, but yeah, pretty cool. And anybody that knows a lot of my history, I was a limo driver for Jim Halsey Company back in the day before all the, you know, still was in not quite the wrestling, but uh, I was trying to branch out on my own from my dad's promotion. And um, so I was limo driver and then went into artist representation and the Oak Ridge Boys, I got to take them uh, around and, and here it is with Richard Barnstall that was the you know a backup for JD Sumner and the Stamps for Elvis, and right. so you know I was I was a, you know here they are and I'm I'm not talking about their music or the Oak Ridge Boys I'm like what was it like <laughs> around Elvis yeah. so, and his and of course you know they uh, the Oak Ridge Boys started out that their uh, main platform was um, religious music and then they did the crossover when uh, Jim Halsey took them over in 1977 and they went in and crossed over to country music. And and then their first album being Y'all Come Back Saloon. So my my love still goes into the music 
And what was really cool was years later, I was in Nashville and was doing a show. I was working for Vince and we were doing an out show, outdoor show um, at the um, Nashville Speedway. And my ring was there and we had like a battle royal with all the big guys. I mean, it was from Andre to God. I think Dr. David was still there. But I mean, we had the big, big guys. So what does that mean? That means that ring better hold, you know, because they're going to be hitting those ropes. Well, before the show started, you know, it was earlier and Bronco was driving up and it was Dwayne Allen of the Oak Ridge Boys. That, and I was like, oh, my God, Dwayne, this Mike McGurk, your old limo driver. And he's like, oh, my God, that's right. You were connected with the wrestling. And so I've got my boys here, my teenage boys. Can you get them in to meet Hulk Hogan? And I said, coming right up. So that was cool. So that, you know, that was two connections that I was able to bring, you know, to look good in front of my Oak Ridge boys. And then he was like, the wrestling, that's right. Yep. I'm, I'm here. So yeah, that was, that was neat. So to, you know, to ever say I was given the opportunity and, and how can I, how can I ever beat the fact that when I'm ever on a plane and somebody was talking recently, they're like, well, I go back in the day of Hulk Hogan, Macho Man, Randy Savage. And, you know, I turn around and think, wow, I was lucky. You know, I got, yeah. I got to, I was a part of that. And to see them now, you know, it's like, Hey, do you ever remember the blonde announcer? <laughs> so what's that like now going back and doing conventions now that you're doing and people still remembering you? It's, Is it pretty surreal? It, you know, um, Thank the Lord. Thank God for the videotape, YouTube, everything else. When we were doing this, we had no idea. You know, I had no idea the impact that it was going to make, you know, on down the line ever. Um, and that's where you realize, oh, my goodness, you know, especially the, the young people. And I see them all the time. I'm like, how do you, you watch me? Yeah. And they, they were kids and now they're kids that have watched. And. So they, you know, it, uh, it's, it's, um, it makes you feel really good and that you like, thank you. And you do, you like, thank you for remembering me or, or that I have done something by bringing their childhood back. They don't want to, you know, that was the other thing. Like they don't want to see somebody that's not happy about what they've done with their life or how their life has gone on or you know, and that's why I've tried to preserve a little bit of this <laughs> as much as I can and, and, and tell them, you know, I said, Hey, you know, just a little bit, my voice is still there and, um, and, um, I can I still, you know, thank God still be around and, and give that. I know what it's like. I put the, myself in their position. So if I really got a chance to see, you know, something that, made a huge impression on me when I was growing up on television or anything else. And that I get to now see him in modern day. Yeah. You can't help, but that brings a, you know, a, it's full circle. And how cool is that, that I can make somebody smile. And I, I love that. I love that by something that I had, you know, whatever I can do right. to give back. Now you also mentioned that you did do color commentary. How was oh, yeah. that, tr trans how was that, tra that transition from ring announcing to commentary? Well, I was stepping in um, uncharted territory in all aspects, the announcing too. But when they said, well, this is Vince's idea initially was to put me as color commentator. So I started down in Houston, Houston TV. And um, at that time, I wished I had been able to 
call and I, I was very serious about it. And anytime that they've caught me, I, I, I see some of it even with um, some old tapes that somebody will send me with Gorilla. And I'm, or if I'm um, with Bruce Pritchard or the Duke of Dorchester, um, that I was serious because I took it serious. It was not um, for me to be out there and, and um, it, it turned into what you wouldn't see now, but it turned into more like, well, this is where you need to be. You need to be home and, you know, raising kids and, you know, what's a woman doing in this? And it, and then I got, I get that. If I wasn't in the ring actually physically being a lady wrestler, where do you get off? You know, it, it, there's no place for you. Well, yes, there is. And that's how I felt is that the desire of wanting of, and being in love with the business that I had defended all my life, you know, from from the time that I was little. And not only that, my name, Mike, I, I still go by Kathleen. So many people know me. My middle name is I was so ashamed of Mike and growing up in, in the school days. And they'd be, of course, you know, they put you in the boys gym because your first name is Michael. And it's like, oh, my God. So they know you immediately. And a lot of them figure it out. You know, hey, that's that's Leroy McGurk's. Um, and my dad was well known here in Tulsa. So I was I went to school with a bunch of attorneys and dentists and doctors kids. So I was the the freak show <laughs> because it was not accepted. And anybody that like. When I when I used to talk to to Kurt Henning and uh, God rest his soul and love his family and any of our second generations, DiBiase, all of them that we always knew this is we grew up defending defending this business because it put the clothes on our backs and and you know those wrestling fans were our people they were the ones that supported it and you know those don't don't knock them you know maybe you don't like that kind of an entertainment but you know what years later once I was in it and then the big huge acceptance of, of wrestling and how it is now they were asking me when I came home and would be here they were coming to Tulsa and asking me hey can you get me you know can can I get back to meet so-and-so and it's like yeah do you remember those times when you know it'd be I'd walk into a classroom and it'd be it's fake. Well, who was that? Who were they talking to? Right. Or let's wrestle, Mike. And I think, oh my God, because I wanted to be a girl. I wanted it. It's Kathleen. Anytime anybody came home and my folks were like, hey, Mike. And then, you know, they'd be like, why are your folks calling you Mike? And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh it's, it's, it's a long story. So it's never been Michael is my given name. And it's M-I-C-H-A-E-L, which I think alcohol might have had a little to do <laughs> because there's a newspaper article. My dad was on the road when I was born and wishful thinking. And back in the day, they didn't have the equipment to go and say, oh, it's a girl, it's a boy. It was the way that my mom carried it and wishful thinking. So my dad was out on the road. The, um, the physician said, he had, he had a meeting or he had something he had to go to. Called my mom and he said, we need to go to the hospital because I'm taking the baby tonight. I was supposed to be born on the 17th. Instead, it was the 16th of March. Daddy's out of town. They have me. So in the newspaper article, it says third day McGurk baby still unnamed. Still have that. I just got the article. It's in really? the archives. Across the world. Yeah. And so daddy comes home and um, yeah, so I was supposed to be Timothy Michael. So you could have been calling me Tim. So daddy comes home and um, 
you know, I had three days to think about it. And, and uh, like I said, he, my mom said he came walking through the hallway with the guys because he's fully blind by now and um, had a big, big, huge bottle of perfume and pronounced that uh, her name is Mike. It's Michael because he was Leroy Michael McGurk. So I uh, and I think, too, I didn't know it then. But as years went on that um, he gave me that name for strength because he couldn't always be there with me or for me um, as most fathers could be. And he knew that, you know, this is going to she's going to be strong and uh, she's going to have to be. And and it did it. Um, if anything, if anything, it's given me uh, a, a tool, and it has. It's been a tool to <laughs> to for sure not make me shy. If right. anything, I've not been too shy. I might start shy, but somebody wants to know, well, how did you get the name Mike? And there, there we go. Well, it goes like this. So <laughs> now, only one person asked me one time when I was out on the road with Vince, and it was late night. They were, you know, kind of looking, and then they'd look, and they're like, where is he? And I'm like, this is he. Am I oh. her? Oh, yeah. But said that um, when I went through the whole story, it was a little bit shorter version than what I've given everybody. She asked me, she said, well, have you sought therapy for this? And I just kind of looked at her and said, you think I need it? I said, I'm, I think, you know, at that time, like for 33 years, I think I've been doing pretty good with it. But I mean, you know, it was, it was odd at that time, you know, or everybody still thinks, you know, why would they do that? But so a little bit of everything is that uh, I was an only child. I was going to carry that name on somehow. And um, two, there was um, back when I told you earlier that my dad was out in California wrestling. He, um, he was close friends. I've got a picture back here where he's even with, um, uh, um, Oh, good Lord, Gene Autry. And then there's a picture of him, uh, of my dad on the set with, um, there's Jack Benny and he's got him in a headlock. And then, um, yeah, so he, he used to visit the sets and back then they were very popular and well-dressed and the stars used to come and see him. But there was a Barrymore family. That's for anybody that's way a movie buff because I belong, I like TCM guys. Turner Classic yeah. movies. Anyway, there was they had a they had a sister named Michael Barrymore, and my dad really thought that was a, a beautiful name, and he liked it. And it was stood out. So there's been a lot of, I can't ask him now, but when he was alive, I kind of got a little different versions of, Dad, how come you you know, how come it was this? So, and he was very proud of it, and um, so that's when I decided, especially when I went off to school and I was at William Woods in Missouri, and. I, I mean, it was Mike and they were like, and I had friends named Tony and Billy and it was like, okay. And they were both all female. So it worked out right. So. so if there was a book written about you, what would the title be called? And also the final chapter, how would you write it? Oh, I'm not at my final chapter yet. I hope nice. I'm still going. Yeah. There's not a final chapter. In fact, Hmm. A girl named Mike. Um, I don't know, or you know, I um, because it's not all about me. It's um, how I got to be Mike and the, the legacy that my dad had. It all fits in, or I would have never had this opportunity. I don't ever. I don't think that uh, you know. I I've got to give credit where credit's due. Um, a lot of times in life, where they say. Uh, 
it's all in who you know. Well, I didn't know them, but they knew of my dad, but still there was a proving ground. So maybe the name definitely helped, but I think there was a lot of eyes on me um, to, um, you know, not really, you know, what she made of and the respect that they had for my dad and the things that had happened in my dad's, um, you know, leading up to the territory and sometimes um, the business that went wrong, um, that I was able to keep the McGurk name out in the wrestling uh, arena um, because that boy that he wanted didn't happen, but his his daughter. And that was, that was really good because you have uh, some of the older people that said, gosh, your dad would have been proud of you. Your dad would be proud of you because of the way that you've carried yourself and yet kept the name out there. So that's that. And, you know, Vince had a lot, a lot to do with that. It, it's a lot of players in that. A lot of players, you know, from Pat Patterson to where I'm sure it was just like, oh my gosh, but yet they knew my dad. But, you know, uh, what are you made of? You know, you, you're not in the ring and but yet I, I had to find that common ground of, and them showing the respect that I had for the business and, and that they knew just because I, you know, I, I was born female doesn't mean that uh, I don't have the love for the business. I just, you know, you don't pull my hair and I was never going to be uh, a wrestler in, in that, in that aspect. So I think that was another thing that my dad thought is how in the world are you going to ever, you know, make a way in this if you're not, wrestling because that mindset was there you know you're either this or you're not and you know the female managers were not as prevalent as they are you know now and they usually didn't look like they are now and they were a lot of times were wrestlers themselves if they were a female if they were a lady they were uh, and coming out there and bringing out their husband like Randy Jack Donovan and um, his wife was Vern Laverne. And so, uh, yeah. And, and again, it's not taking away from those wonderful, wonderful athletes and women that were women wrestlers in the fifties. Gorgeous. I mean, they're still gorgeous in what they did. And, um, and it was hard on them. You know, you can ask any of them and they were always judged on how their match went and always a little harsher, I think, than the guys. And, um, yeah, that's why Mula, uh, you know, had her girls and, and, but they were always, you know, it was, they had to have a, a better match as well as the guys. And um, you can ask any of them. And, and today still any of them that's come in and that I knew as, as a, as a young girl, um, Candy Devine's mama, you know, um, and of course, Candy, any of them, I, I admire greatly with what they did and how they went on the road and, uh, you know, it, and their bodies were slung around so hard. Just, yeah. And, and um, Medusa, uh, which I had just got to meet this past weekend in Tampa and um, uh, how, how, how benefiting, how it is when I've made something of uh, a lasting memory for somebody to come up to me and, and, um, and introduce us because as women, we are um, all in this together. Right. Well, Mike, I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, I could talk to you forever, and I really appreciate um, oh. you believing in completely damaged. Did we cover everything? Oh, we did M more than. I, love, um, um, I hope that I've uh, brought a little light in your day and um, brought some memories back, and that um, 
again, we could, probably could go on forever. So I'm going to let you take it away. Well, damaged fans, thank you so much for listening. And remember, don't keep it nice and neat. Keep it completely damaged on MonkerRadio.com where music and minds meet. Thank you, Mike. I love you all. Thank you. Yeah!